Hello, it's 30th of November 2019 and this is episode 124 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel and I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? It's been pretty good. I feel like it's been a bit less full on than last week. So I feel like I'm a bit more used to the craziness of the news train at this point. <laughs> so last week was a bit of like a baptism of fire because it's suddenly so much stuff. It was kind of overwhelming. And there's also been a lot of stuff this week. But I feel like I've been a bit kinder to myself and just accepting, yeah, I can't follow all this stuff. It's okay. So yeah, how about you? I was going to say, it seems a bit more chill but it's because I've kind of given up <laughs> <laughs> yes there I think there are a few tv spots at this point that I just haven't watched and I probably won't bother at this point because I've seen some gifs on twitter and it already looks like they're starting to show more than I'm kind of comfortable knowing or I know it's all about context so you don't know for sure what's happening but it's still like oh that's a kind of a cool visual that I wish I'd waited to see in the actual movie so it's uh kind of thrust upon you whether you like it or not if you're on social media so yeah definitely I feel like we're approaching that point where in the last Jedi promo there was a tv spot that showed Rey holding Kylo's lightsaber and that was like hit the brakes that's what I thought but I swear I don't know if it's just me losing track of time this time around but I swear all that stuff happened much later um Mm. you know we're not even into December yet so I'm kind of surprised by how quickly it's all happening all of a sudden Yeah, I think they're being really aggressive with the marketing because, yeah, last movie, I think they just want it to be a huge hit. They want every Star Wars movie to be a huge hit, but I just feel like the marketing machine is more aggressive this time. Yeah, I did notice that Jewel of the Fates was playing in one of the TV spots. I don't remember anything that actually happened in it, but I remember the music and that was pretty cool. No, that was really cool. I think it was sort of like a merger between Jewel of the Fates and the Imperial March. Yeah, it was epic. Yeah, it was amazing. These trailer people know how to cut together a good tune. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, awesome. So what we've done with the news this week in line with what we were saying about being kinder to ourselves and taking a deep breath is that we have not even tried to cover everything that has come out, essentially. There have been loads of stories. There's lots of magazine coverage. There are many interviews. And if we were to cover everything, we'd have like a two hour news segment, which I like to think no one would want. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, what we've done is we've picked out a few of the most intriguing stories and we're going to talk about those. And yeah, then we will move on to The Mandalorian and Resistance, which have both had nice juicy episodes to talk about. So yeah, the first thing that we have to discuss is that there's a cover story about Adam Driver in Rolling Stone, where he talks quite a bit about Star Wars and the Rise of Skywalker in particular, which is exciting. So yeah, could you um, read out the first part of the quote, Kirsty, which is just about Driver after finishing the shooting on the movie? Sure. In February, Driver sat on an airplane headed home from London, looking so dazed and distressed that a flight attendant asked if he was okay. He said he was, but didn't explain what was on his mind. He had just wrapped one of his final shoots for the Star Wars trilogy, and what he believed to be Kylo Ren's final Rise of Skywalker scene, and then sprinted for the airport. Everybody else was asleep, and I didn't even realise that I was just sitting there in a daze, he says. These movies have been a part of my life for six years. That's a hard thing to wrap up where they've taken me and what I've learned in making them. 
that there's an ending to these movies. How do you begin to process what that means? Plus, as usual, he was worrying whether he had done enough takes. It was just the weight of it. You're finally sitting and you have six hours to think about your last shot. Did I get it right? Was this line right? Was that right? There's lots of things to process. Oh, poor baby. <laughs> like, I know this sounds really condescending. I just... Well, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, but l- let me rephrase. Like, I feel like he's so deeply invested in the character and the role and his story. And yeah, I just really respect that. And I feel for him about how hard it must have been to bring all that to an end. Because, yeah, it is a huge, huge deal when you've been doing this thing for six years. That's longer than, like, I was in university and, like, finishing university was a big deal. And university was not, like, a multi-billion dollar film production. And, yeah, I'm not making much sense. But I'm just saying it's a big deal and I empathise with Adam's emotions. Definitely, when you finish a project... Like, it's natural to kind of mull over it for a while and think, did I get that right? Am I really happy with my work? Yeah. Um, you know, you do that with all sorts of things. So and especially if you're sat on a plane and there's not much else to do. It's like, oh, I'm going to think about it, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, it's like the ultimate purgatory, isn't it? Being stuck on a plane. Um, yep. And then the next part that I'm going to read out is just a really quick little snippet of a thing. Driver is so protective of the character and his trials that he takes time in a follow-up call to register his objection to my assessment of Kylo as petulant. (laughs) And yeah, there's not much substance to this. Again, it's just another excuse for me to say I love Adam Driver and I love how defensive he is about Kylo Ren. And yeah, he's taking down all those bad takes on the character. I think it's also recognising that Kylo has evolved and you could mm. probably get away with calling him petulant in The Force Awakens and maybe to an extent some of The Last Jedi, but there's growth there. Um, and yeah, obviously Adam will have thought about this a lot. And he's kind of been there with the character through the journey. So, um, yeah, he obviously cares about expressing how he feels about the character as accurately as possible. And mm-hmm. I think this is interesting because he, in a different quote, I think it's one that we discussed last week, he was referring to Kylo as a petulant teenager, but saying yeah. that he's no longer that. Um, you know, now he's got to the point where I think it was in the context of talking about how he's killed Han Solo and Snoke. So he's kind of removed himself from under the, like the subjugation, if you will, of these like father figures, and now he's kind yes. of got to stand on his own feet. Um, so he is no longer that petulant teenager. He's kind of grown. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yep, definitely. Sure has been on a journey. Yep. Then in line with that, and the idea of father figures, would you like to read out the next quote? He's almost like a spoiled rich kid who has to evolve into something. He's following his path of finding who he is. You might have had to metaphorically, or in this case, literally, kill your father to find out who you are, to be your own person. At a certain point, you have to claim it. But then again, we never really figure out who we are. I just really love this quote. It underlines something that I think we both have felt, probably since The Force Awakens, that is not just Rey who's on a coming-of-age story in these movies, or Finn or Poe. It's also Kylo Ren. And yeah there's this whole idea of killing the father and star wars because it does operate on this mythic level is almost like well yes han's death does literally happen in the context of the movie but it's also this symbolic gesture in what it means for kylo's personal development 
and yeah there's almost more to it on that level than there is in the literal sense of oh my god Han Solo is dead and yeah it's just great so I love this character and how much thought went into building him up yeah (laughs) I think that's what gets lost in a lot of the discussion like yes within the context of the story Kylo does literally kill his father but it's a story and therefore a metaphor that we can apply to our own lives and find relatable to whatever that is that happens in our own lives um so yeah adam's just kind of bringing it back to that um (laughs) probably has to humor quite a lot of bad kylo takes even more than we do yep and then the last one is this one which i will read there is undeniable on-screen chemistry between adam driver and daisy ridley and the films have been teasing a connection maybe a romantic one between their characters and fans being fans have responded by going wild over the whole thing with a passionate group of so-called Raylos. I feel so seen. (laughs) Advocating for the relationship. A a common objection, which I pose to Driver, is that Kylo has done horrible things, murdered most of his Jedi training classmates, killed his dad, almost blasted his mum, etc. I mean, of course I'm sympathetic to him, and I understand, Driver says. But I can see on the outside, if I analysed it, which I don't, that someone who's killed his class doesn't really seem to be good boyfriend material. To be fair, the Raylos acknowledge that Kylo must first experience redemption, bendemption, naturally, before love can flourish. What do you think about the increasing use of bendemption in popular media, Kirsty? I think it's hilarious. (laughs) Like, that's a word that we came up with. It's not a word. It's just a, a silly phantom to refer to Kylo Ren's potential redemption arc. But yeah, it's hilarious to see this stuff kind of acknowledged. Yeah. Because, like, the story is there. The story is, like, one thing, and then fan engagement with it is another. Um, you wouldn't need to reference this or Raylos as a group of fans. You could just ask Adam about the on screen dynamic. But I guess it's more entertaining. So. Yeah, they've got to milk it for all it's worth, basically. But yeah, I do like how Adam talks about it because, yeah, he basically says that he can understand and acknowledge the external drama and perhaps some of the objections to the idea of these people as a couple. But he's like, yeah, that's not the level on which I'm approaching this, which is the right approach, you know, because what goes in Star Wars is not what would go in reality in people's day-to-day lives. And it just ties back into the whole Ben and Han Solo thing. Because, yes, in real life, people should absolutely not go around stabbing their fathers with laser swords. I would like to think that's a very, very rare thing that just does not happen. But symbolically, yeah, everyone needs to metaphorically kill their parental figure at some point in order to grow beyond that and find out who they are as an individual. And, yeah, that's the point that's served by having that as part of the story. And yeah, we're going to find out what the point of Raylo is in The Rise of Skywalker, presumably. So yeah, I'm excited. Right. Yeah, we've just been enjoying the story as it's told. And then what happens in the last chapter is what happens. Um, That's beyond our control. So we're just here to enjoy it. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, this stuff about, again, kind of going over that common understanding from what uh, The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi set up, that he killed most of his Jedi training classmates... This is why I'm really interested in that comic series, The Rise of Kylo Ren, because Mm. the synopsis that we've got seems to suggest that that's not 
exactly what happened or it didn't happen in the way the films kind of posed it. Yeah. And I guess this kind of goes hand in hand with my concern for that story being told as a comic, that it's kind of just not going to be registered as part of the overall story. I highly doubt that Adam Driver would be aware of it. Yeah. Um, And would it play into the films in any way? And if so, why was that choice made? Yeah. You know? No, exactly. You'd like to think that it does have some intersection with the movie, but I think it would be a question of like reverse engineering. Like there was a conversation with Charles Soule about, look, here is where this character ends up. And we want to like make people think about his backstory in a different way. Like tell us your ideas about how his story could go early on when he first became Kylo Ren. You know, I think it would be that sort of conversation. But yeah, I strongly doubt that anything that Charles Soule is doing like beyond details that have already been established and that JJ has said in interviews will have been known to Adam Driver when he was performing as Kylo Ren in The Rise of Skywalker. So I think it would have just been too late. I'm not sure writing on the comic series even began when The Rise of Skywalker was still filming. Well, it's not even just about what Adam as an actor thinks, it's about what the audience thinks. And if you're going to tell that story um, in one way in the movies and then in comics go, actually, that's not what happened... of the audience are not going to be aware of that change. They're still going to think that the guy murdered his classmates. Yeah. I I can't... I have to wait until the series is out and the last movie is out, obviously. We all have to do that to step back and see how it all plays together. But right now, I can't really see... Like, the, the narrative, the cultural understanding of this character will always be what happens in the movies. Yes. You know, even if you're looking at something like The Clone Wars, most Star Wars fans, most general audience members will not have watched The Clone Wars, so they don't have that deeper appreciation of Anakin's arc there either. Yeah, no, it's true. Like, so I guess the only mention of it really in in the movies, in terms of what Ben did when he turned against Luke, is from Luke himself in The Last Jedi and the story he tells to Rey. And yeah, like if nothing is said to counteract that in The Rise of Skywalker to like set the record straight, then yeah, people are going to take Luke at his word. Exactly. And right now, we don't even know what the truth is because we haven't got the comic, but the fact that they're going over that ground again and kind of pose it as this, that they challenge the expectations in terms of the Knights of Ren existing separate to him, him and Luke battling them together, and then what it was kind of framed as like the Knights come in and then the um, the other students turn on Ben for some reason. They think that Luke's dead or something. Yeah, something like that. I think it's like there's an encounter between Ben and Luke against the Knights of Ren when Ben is like a young boy, essentially a young teenager. And then flash forward to the whole incident at the temple. And after like... Ben brings the rocks down on Luke then the other students see and then they're chasing Ben and I think then the idea is that he goes off and joins the Knights of Ren for whatever reason yeah I will just (laughs) be kind of confused if none of that's addressed in the Rise of Skywalker Um, Leia never finds out what really happened because of course she still doesn't know at the end of The Last Jedi what really happened between Luke and Ben Yeah, Um, Luke's just like I'm sorry and she doesn't even really understand what he's apologising for Mm. Um, (laughs) it's kind of strange 
Yeah, it's so tricky. I presume that's all the sort of ground they would have gone into in much more depth if Carrie had still been here and they could have like conversations and scenes with her and Adam. So, yeah, based on the restrictions they're going to be working within, I kind of feel like anything they do is going to have to be much more like visual and less definite, which will inevitably be kind of frustrating. But, yeah, we're just going to have to see how it's executed. Yeah. Yeah, just one last thing. Kudos to the writer of the article for pointing out that redemption is necessary for love to flourish because it is. Um, I actually don't agree. Ooh, okay, tell me. Tell I me think, more. Well, I think these characters are already in love. I'm just going to say it. Yeah, no, I can see that. I'm kind of with you in that I f- feel like the romance, the connection's already there. As the writer himself acknowledges here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like, I know you're not saying anything, like, wildly controversial. Well, I am, because like, it is controversial to some people. I just, like, I'm calling a spade a spade. Like, it's already there in the story. Part of the tension is that they already feel that way about each other, but they're separated by the conflict. Yeah, I think that's what I mean in terms of love can flourish before anything can happen with those feelings sure. that they have for one another. He needs to be redeemed. Basically, yeah. that's what I was trying to get across. So no, and I, I agree with you. I just think it's interesting the way this is often phrased. Like, I guess it depends what you're talking about when you say love can flourish. It's like, well, yeah, you can't change your relationship status, <laughs> but they kind of are already tied up in this supernatural bond and clearly have feelings for each other. Like, that's the story. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Like, the goal would be for at the start of the Rise of Skywalker, it's complicated, which is canon because Daisy Ridley herself said that. And then by the end of the Rise of Skywalker, it switches to in a relationship. <laughs> but we'll have to see. So, yeah. yeah. Well, they, they both go off the grid and quit social media because it's toxic. <laughs> yes. I deleted my Facebook account. Yeah. There's no relationship status to speak of. It's no, no one else's business. <laughs> yeah, it's true. No one's business but their own. Yeah. God, social media and stars would just be a complete trash fire. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah that's a rabbit hole for a different time okay so then the next thing we want to talk about is that the first clip from the rise of skywalker has been released and there have also been like a gazillion tv spots which we will not go into in any detail and just saying up front we're not going to talk about any of the more like holy shit shots and stuff because some of these tv spots are starting to cross a line i've already seen people saying like yep i'm out now on twitter so just to be considerate, we're going to talk about very safe things, essentially, that are kind of fun, but they're not going to like allude to what would appear to be critical moments in the film. So, yes. So the clip. What did you make of the clip, Kirsty? Uh, it was fine. <laughs> it's I mean, true. I knew it's that true. they were going to show something like this because it's the safest possible thing. We've already seen a lot of footage from this stuff on Pasana. Uh, it's kind of like an action sequence, so not much to give away in terms of story and characters and stuff. And it's just like pew pew, Ray shooting with a snarly face, um, <laughs> the jokey they fly now thing. Yeah, stormtroopers. You mean with four times? <laughs> yeah, very funny. Uh, it's wholesome. Yeah, exactly. Wholesome, good fun, like uncontroversial is what it is, which is why I said we could talk about it because there's literally no danger attached to this whatsoever. Um, 
but yeah the clip it i feel like it's the kind of thing that will but work really well in context you know so it's clearly going to be a part of some much bigger action scene where they're being chased by the first order and yeah it's just the tiniest little snippet of that so i think it'll be part of a rollicking good time in a fun movie (laughs) yeah yeah for sure that's my summation there are then a few moments from the TV spots that I picked out that we could just briefly talk about. And don't ask me to identify which TV spots they're from, because I don't know. They're just from one of the many, many TV spots to have come out. Um, so the first one I liked is there's a shot in the throne room, which we've seen before in the final trailer. But it's a different shot because Ray is sort of like taking an angry swipe at Kylo and he's like, ah, and trying to dodge. And I found that funny. <laughs> Hashtag Dart Ray. She's got some feelings she needs to work through, okay? Kind of, uh, yeah. I guess it's quite shocking to see Ray swinging a saber at him when he doesn't have his out. Yeah. Not not cool, Ray. Not the Jedi way. Yeah. I feel like just that one shot is quite a visceral encapsulation of the vibe I'm getting from almost all the footage we've seen of Ray and Kylo together so far. Because the vibe is very much of Ray being the angry one yeah. and wanting to attack and being violent. And Kylo is constantly on the defensive and being steady and kind of like waiting for her to work through all those feelings. Yeah. And yeah, it makes me very intrigued to see how the relationship is going to play out in terms of the greater scope of it. Yeah, I mean, she does have a lot of anger in her and there's a ton of expectations on her at this point. And kind of what she's saying in the trailer like no one understands her so maybe she's trying to express this to people and they're sort of like brushing it off and trivializing it and being like oh you're the last jedi you're fine um and she's like actually i need help i'm not dealing with some stuff quite as well as i'd want to yeah yeah i'm really interested to see ray's journey in this in this movie yeah and i like that she's been given permission to be so angry and full of rage and stuff because yeah, sometimes there's this expectation of a certain demeanour and like way of conducting themselves with female protagonists. Oh but... yeah, I don't think JJ's ever been kind of prone to that. Very... No, I think Because she felt that in The Force Awakens as well and that's what drew us to her so much. Yeah, but She does exactly. feel very authentic. Yeah, I love that little snarly face that JJ <laughs> does. <laughs> so good. It's awesome. That was maybe the best moment in the clip. Apart from, they fly now. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, to move on. Um, Then there's a moment in the First Order ship and it's Finn, Ray, and Poe together and Ray is mind-tricking the guards to let them pass, essentially. (laughs) Poe turns to Finn and is like, has she been doing that to us the whole time? This is uh, interesting. It's very interesting, isn't it? It's funny, but then when you think about it, it's like, what does this say about the relationships between these three characters? Yeah, I... I think like in the moment it will just be played for laughs, but it, I think maybe as part of the wider look at her and Poe's relationship, it, we kind of like, oh, does he not trust her? Yeah. Um, even if that's like not explored explicitly, it is just kind of setting up this idea of uh, there being the separation and like the potential that Ray could do something like that to them. Exactly. There's this whole idea of that separation because of her force powers again, um, which, yeah, I'm excited to see them explore because it further stresses that, yeah, it's going to be a complex relationship with the trio in air quotes and it's not all just going to be like pals on an adventure. That's obviously going to be a big part of it. 
but there's also going to be more interesting undercurrents going on with the dynamics between them. Um, and another one of my favourite ones. I don't know if you noticed this. Kirsty's I have not. I saw this in your notes and I was like, what? <laughs> it's kind of like a blink and you'll miss it thing. Um, it's basically like Kylo is in a dark room and he's moving really fast to like whip out his lightsaber. And for the briefest of moments, you can see what sort of looks like a homey kitchen setting behind him. <laughs> what? <laughs> With what I believe and want to think is a teapot. I'm going to send you an image of okay, this Okay, because I honestly don't remember this. <laughs> yeah. So this is obviously because you don't remember it, it's difficult for you to provide input. But I just want to say that I found that really charming. And yeah, I hope there's this moment in the film where he gets to sit down and have a cuppa. So he deserve it. There's going to be a lot of stressful things happening. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm so looking forward to sending that to you now. <laughs> I need to see it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty epic. Yep, and then one shot that I know you have definitely seen is Kylo in the Knights of Ren stomping through a First Order corridor in their muddy boots. <laughs> what do you think Just... about this? frankly I'm appalled by this disgraceful <laughs> behaviour yeah it's not very fair to whoever's got to clean that up is it <laughs> cough general hux <Sorry. laughs> yeah right <laughs> he's been demoted to janitor status that's why we haven't been seeing him in any of the promotional material I think I am going to struggle to take Kylo and the Knights of Ren seriously because they do just look <laughs> like a band strutting their way for a music video <laughs> it is so funny I do love them there's some, um, like, I can't remember what it is. There's some sort of, like, meme where it's, like, a group of people that dressed in ridiculous costumes and they hold up a sign saying we demand to be taken seriously. Oh, yeah, that's Arrested Development. Arrested Development, thank you. And, yeah, it reminds me of that. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it's like, take us seriously. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, I'll get right on that. <laughs> take yeah. that ridiculous thing off. It's beautiful. I'm I on, do love it. I'm on Snoke's side on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a silly, silly bunch of boys. Just need some corrective treatment, really. Um, and yeah, like because for years with my young niece, I was forced to watch Peppa Pig against my will. I hate to say it, but when I did see that the boots were muddy, the first thing that came to my mind was I like jumping in muddy puddles. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, does Kylo like jumping in muddy puddles? It's like probably not. <laughs> No, they've come yeah. back from a super serious mission. Um. <laughs> because they're grown-ups and they demand to be taken seriously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't do stupid things like jump in muddy bottles. I'm guessing this is just after like the mission on that... Is it the Red Planet where he's like taking someone out? Looks pretty muddy anyway. But Yeah. No, exactly. It would make a lot of sense for, to me if it is on the Red Planet. Um, I think it's either got to be that or the desert. It's some place where you're not going to come out of it very clean, basically. Yeah. I guess what I'm interested in, he's unmasked in that shot and then masked in this one when he's back on the ship. So is mm. he getting the mask reforged on that planet? Yeah, that's a really good idea, potentially. I just <laughs> I love the idea of him reforging the mask just out of peer pressure because the knights are back <laughs> and he's got to fit in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what oh else is going to be the explanation? That's, you know, we see it being reforged, so it has to be, like, part of the story, why he's getting his mask back. Yeah. Um, and I just can't think of anything else aside from, like, oh, God, the boys are back in town. 
<laughs> yeah. No, that's the only explanation that makes sense to me as well, because otherwise it's kind of arbitrary about why he just yeah gets it reforged after going without for a year and yeah like i really hope in the opening crawl we get something at the beginning like the knights of ren have returned from x mm. or wherever because then that would reinforce the notion oh okay his pals have just come back and now he's got to change his whole act and demeanor to fit in because mm-hmm. yeah it's very important there's gonna be lots of young people watching this movie can teach them good lessons about peer pressure and how to resist it and were there any like moments or shots from the tv spots that you wanted to bring up Kirsty? there's one i can't remember which one it's from but there's one where kylo looks like he's walking towards some lightning um oh yeah and it kind of yeah it kind of looked like he was walking towards where ray would be in the main trailer when she's like I guess is it Palpatine's throne or something she's looking towards and there's lightning going on around her no I totally know what you mean and yeah Yeah. I very much get that vibe as well it's like him venturing into the underworld isn't it is that sort of aesthetic yeah I felt like it had to be him going after her in some way because I was like clearly they want us to associate these two separate things together um, yeah with, with the lightning there so it definitely looks like the same environment I'd be shocked if it wasn't so yeah it'll be fascinating to see how that all factors in so right let's move on to the final news section um which is that jj abrams has revealed his favorite prequel scene um and yeah this is from entertainment weekly would you like to read out what jj has had to say about the prequels kirsty mm-hmm. um oh and before we start i'm going to point out that this is one of my favorite prequel scenes for anyone who listened to our uh, top star wars moments episode i think it was for episode 100 um yeah this is my favorite scene from revenge of the sith so good choice jj um with everybody asking director jj abrams about his upcoming film the rise of skywalker and perhaps about george lucas's original iconic trilogy ew's dalton ross instead asked the director for his favorite scene from the star wars prequels abrams named the revenge of the sith seduction scene where palpatine lures anakin skywalker to the dark side of the force with the tales of darth plagueis there's just something about that scene abrams says There's just two people sitting there. It's visually interesting, but I just think Ian's performance in it is spectacular. Awesome. It proves that JJ is a man of taste when it comes (laughs) to his prequels. He is. And visually it is very interesting because they're at the opera and there's like that weird giant bubble and ominous music. And yeah, there are just these two characters side by side. um, But you can see the cogs turning for Anakin and you can see... Palpatine's mastery manipulation at work yeah I really want another seduction scene from Palpatine in this movie he's just so good at it you know like so good at like looking at a person and just figuring them out and working out what are the vulnerabilities in this person what can make this person a tool for me to deploy in my plan you know so I want that because yeah Ian's got skills and I want to see them used effectively yeah, and he returned relatively recently to do similar stuff with Ezra in Rebels as well. Um, mm. You know, that, that kind of thing that you're talking about, that he kind of identify people's vulnerabilities and what they really want and uh, take advantage of that or try to at least. Yeah. And I do think it's interesting because there are a few scenes in the prequels, obviously, where you can see Palpatine kind of chipping away at Anakin. Um mm. But this one in particular is one where he's talking about 
the ability to manipulate life and death. Um, and I wonder if that's something that's consciously going to play in in terms of how Palpatine has survived, if we mm. are going to see him physically resurrected, or if there's going to be some spooky spiritual stuff at work with the Force. Yeah. Like, I do feel like it's extremely deliberate that we haven't got one visual of Palpatine yet. We've right. heard him say a bunch of things, but we have no idea what he looks like in this movie. And Apart yeah. from uh, that hot toys figure they use on the poster. <laughs> oh, can you imagine if they just like CGI in like a hot toy <laughs> for like every Palpatine scene with like the mouth really crudely moving? Oh no, <laughs> that'd be amazing! Oh my god. Um, yeah, no, so I don't think that's an accurate reflection of the Palpatine we're gonna get somehow. But yeah, it'll be really interesting. Because one of the most fascinating things about Palpatine the prequels was just seeing him as like a normal bloke prior to going all like monster makeup. Because in Return of the Jedi, he's just a monster. You know, you look at him visually and he's horrifying. And you're like, yep, that's definitely the bad guy. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the prequels for the first two and a half movies, he's just a dude. Like he's just an older dude who's a politician and that almost makes him more interesting to watch because you understand why he's so plausible to people and why people are so taken in by him. Whereas when it's like Palpatine in monster mode, it's like, yeah, you definitely shouldn't trust that. Yeah, it's interesting to see how he got that way. It was Maze Windu kind of defending himself and using that force lightning to strike back at him. Mm -hmm. So he kind of did it himself. Yeah, exactly. I'm a very bad man. Um, okay, cool. So then we have the transition points in which we go into episode four, or chapter four, as I should say, of The Mandalorian, which is called Sanctuary. And yeah, obviously we're going to talk about this episode of full spoilers. So if you have not yet watched this episode and plan to, I recommend coming back once you've seen it. Um, yeah, so what were your overall feelings about this episode, Kirsty? Uh, I liked it. Yeah, it felt like a, a nice follow-on from what we'd gotten so far. Um, kind of fit in with what we and a lot of other people have been saying in terms of the imagery of the planets and that transition from like desert, lifeless planets to somewhere green and full of life and vibrancy. Um, and that going hand in hand with the introduction of more female characters as well. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so some interesting uh, new relationships for the characters and lots more of cute baby Yoda and connections for him. <laughs> yes. They know what they have in baby Yoda, don't they? They're they not do. shy about exploiting him. <laughs> yeah, it's. I'm not going to be a hater. I will always love baby Yoda, but uh, maybe it's because I'm too online. <laughs> but some of it's getting a little much for me now. Like, uh, just. They're making some conscious choices that it's like, oh, I see what you're doing there. You're having him take a sip from something. So you've got the sipping tea meme. Like, yeah. you know, it's like, it's calculated. Yeah. No, they need to be careful not to push it too far with the adorableness. Because, yeah, as you say, Baby Yoda will always be adorable. Nothing will change that. But there is the possibility of reaching a saturation point with Baby Yoda and how adorable he is. So, yeah, they need to watch out for that. Um, but yeah, I liked this episode. It wasn't up to episode three, in my opinion, um, because episode three was just that good. And 
is also not really a fair comparison because episode three was like the climax of all the episodes up to that point and it was bringing together all of those plot lines and all of that emotional investment mm-hmm. that the first two chapters had established so yeah i think that going to this episode which obviously continues the story and picks things up but it just didn't feel as like urgent or essential you know like i wouldn't say it's filler because it does provide interesting and important information about the Mandalorian as a person and it sets up some important relationships for him. But yeah, it just didn't feel quite as vital as the previous episodes have, I think. It, I, I get what you're saying, but I think it is because it's just all one story and things run together pretty, I mean, in in real time, right? Like you go from one episode to the next and this is the first episode we've even had acknowledgement of any kind of time jump in. So yeah. far, it's been pretty much non-stop. Um, so towards the end of this episode, the Mandalorian kind of reveals that they've actually been on this planet for a few weeks now. So it's almost mm-hmm. like an epilogue at the end there. Yes. But I think, you know, with that comes some, like we say, like the deepening of relationships that I think will be really important to him as he develops. Um, and this is kind of where we thought things were going in terms of those connections beginning to matter more. And like, an explicit acknowledgement of the fact that he does care about the child now um yeah. that the child's happiness is kind of what comes first so yeah do you kind of want to go through it from the beginning or uh yeah no sure that's um a good way of approaching it so yeah at the beginning we obviously get this village where we're introduced to Amira and her child and yeah everything seems great and awesome but then the bad guys turn up and attack the village and yeah like i felt it was well done in that it was a sent it was a good choice to focus so much on amira because even though yeah this is a new character we haven't met her before she did provide like some point of reference when all this was going on you know because a lot of the villages they're just faceless cannon fodder essentially but because we had that very quickly established emotional connection with her and the child it felt more basically so yeah i felt it was quite a well done introduction sequence i think so too and it was clearly like you say presented as this almost romantic ideal and then the orcish clatoinian or however you say it raiders kind of came in it felt like almost like watching lord of the rings with the uruk high invading the rohan villages yes yeah, this like aggressive violence, just destroying everything. And then a lot of the villagers that they were showing were women as well. And of, of course, at the center of it, you had Amira and her daughter, Winter. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I felt like that was a conscious choice as well. Yeah, no, definitely. It was very pastoral, basically. And I did kind of find it funny how the invaders were depicted as being such like blatant bad guys, you know, right down to like the orcish looks i think in my notes i have um a face only a mother could love <laughs> which which is a bit mean because by the standards of their species they could all be highly attractive people um but yeah to a human viewer it's like yeah very clearly coded in a certain way so that yeah. we'll respond to them with revulsion and fear right i think it's this kind of thing that the mandalorian as a series is like it's feeling almost like a series that could have been animated, but they chose to do it live action for me. Oh, yeah. Because it does have this almost cartoonish, simple quality to it, which isn't bad. I'm really enjoying it. But some of those choices, like you say, are so on the nose. <laughs> but it's like, oh, yeah, I see what you're doing there. Yeah. 
Um, exactly. Obviously, the most overt parallels for this episode come from Seven Samurai, which has been used over and over in Star Wars animation, to be honest. Um, with that idea of like the Jedi having to come in and help a, a village take care of itself or a community of some kind defend themselves from an outside force. Yeah, I really want to watch Seven Samurai. I feel really bad. It's one of those big gaps in my cinema education. But, you shouldn't yeah, feel bad. <laughs> yeah, like I, I don't like actively like wake up at night and like, <laughs> oh, I haven't seen Seven Samurai. Oh, God. But yeah, like whenever I'm reminded that I haven't seen it, I'm like, damn, I need to see that. So yeah, thank you for reminding me. Yeah, then we cut to the cockpit of the Mandalorian ship. And yeah, we just get more like daddy scenes basically where the Mandalorian is just being a good good dad to his little son and it's very sweet my favourite part was when he called the baby you little womp rat <laughs> yeah it's uh, like I say I hope I'm not upsetting anyone I don't want to be branded a hater but it's like it's getting very over the top <laughs> it's like I get it he's a big yes. softy <laughs> Yoda's literally pushing his buttons. The Mandalorian, it's going to go down in history as being a profoundly unsubtle show. <laughs> like, it's not trying to, like, hide anything up its sleeve. It's like, yeah, this is what I am. Yeah, not at this point. It's it's leaned into it. Oh, so heavily. It's quite funny when you think that Baby Yoda was a complete secret before the show came out, and now it's like, Baby Yoda! Yeah, everything hinges on that. Is really the heart of the show. Yeah, and then basically Mandalorian and Baby Yoda, they venture into the like township and they go into a bar and the waitress, Kirsty, I need to talk to you about the waitress in that mm-hmm. bar because she felt to me like someone from Galaxy's Edge. She did not feel like an actual character. Did you know that that's uh, Josh Gad's wife? No, I didn't. Yeah. Oh, man. He was I feel like I'm being mean now. No. <laughs> like wow that's crazy like it makes sense though it's obviously josh gad is such a big Star Wars fan yeah i think he's quite jealous that she's gotten to be in it before him <laughs> no that's quite sweet I- i'm glad f- that she got the opportunity i don't know and it's all- probably also just how the character is and like they're trying to sell this idea of this like super nice sunny community where people are perky and friendly yeah i just didn't buy it i like this episode but i think i'm with you in that there are were several moments where i was like oh i'm watching tv i'm not watching a star wars movie Mm. um yeah yeah exactly it just breaks the immersion a bit doesn't it as you're watching not not bad but just different like low-key um and obviously you have the epic moments too um and the overall story like i said it's like very much seven samurai um like the training sequences and gathering the team and then taking on the atst and then celebrating that victory. The main things I enjoyed in this episode were the relationships, like the introduction of Cara Dune, um, her and the Mandalorians fight, and then like quickly becoming allies. And I don't want to say friends, that might be fast, but then again, a few weeks did go by. But you, you get the impression, of course, that they'll meet again, even though they've separated now. Yeah, no, and- definitely. I really like the character and... Um- yeah, I think the only thing that surprised me is I think based on the marketing of the show, I got the impression that Kara was going to be like a more regular member of his squad, so to speak, you know? Mm. 
Like, I thought that once they met, she'd be like, I'm going to join you and travel the galaxy together. But, yeah. Like, I think in terms of the way the character is positioned and how the story's going, I think it feels too early for him to trust other people to that extent. Yeah. You know, so I think it feels right in that way. But, yeah, I'm just curious. Because I presume she's going to come back. It will just be interesting to see how she comes back. Yeah, well, this episode was like a big big tease in that way, wasn't it? Because it was like him being tempted by that life of connectedness and beauty and community and romance, potentially. Um, Mm -hmm. But then saying, no, that's not for me. I can't settle down. Um, And especially at the end, I can't even leave him here. He thought that he'd be able to. Yeah. Um, I did. There were just elements of it. I know it's like fairy tale Star Wars, but like, oh, I'll take care of him as one of my own. It's like, really? <laughs> like, you've known these people for a few weeks, and you're just <laughs> ready to adopt this kid as cute as he is. Do you, do you even know that he has the Force? Do you know why they're here? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm being a hater now. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It makes sense. I don't hate this episode. I don't. I actually really enjoyed it. It's like, as I'm talking about it now, there are like several moments where I'm like, oh, that seems kind of silly. Yeah. Like, and I'm sorry. I think I was a bit more negative about it than you were. So I might be like focusing more on my like nitpicks and stuff. So I did still enjoy it. It just, yeah, in relation to the other episodes, it's not one of my more favorite ones. So yeah, I don't mean to like take away from what it does do well because... It's still like strong and fun in its own terms. And yeah, I will definitely praise um, Bryce Dallas Howard's direction as well. I think oh, she yeah. Did a fine she was, job. Yeah, she really did. Um, yeah. There were quite a few choices where I was like, oh, I really like what she did there in terms of the framing, especially around the romantic elements um, yeah. between the Mandalorian and Amira. Um, like that yeah. stuff was totally my jam in terms of like them talking about why he doesn't take the helmet off, kind of. Um, yeah like learning more about the history of how he came to be a mandalorian how they took him in how because of that um he doesn't feel like he could ever take it off and then kara asking later like what happens if you do take it off and it's like well nothing happens but that's kind of that part of my life over at that point and i can't just put it back on it really does have this um sacredness to it it's yeah it's like this really important thing to him um I feel like the mask is being used really well in the story and as a metaphor. Yeah. Um, which, again, is pretty on the nose in terms of... Obviously, there are masked characters in Star Wars, and to an extent, this is part of all of their stories because that idea of emotional distance and hiding yourself away, that's never framed as a good thing in Star Wars, to be honest. Mm. Um, and the difference, of course, here from the Mandalorians that we've seen before is that the Mandalorians in the animation are perfectly free to take off their helmets whenever they want. Uh, And he is not. So it is different. Um, And I think it's being used really well in terms of, again, like we've said before with previous episodes, the commentary on masculinity and that connecting with the feminine as they they really went to town on in this episode. And um, there was some great shipping material. Yeah, I was very excited by the introduction of the idea that once the mask comes off in front of someone else, it has to stay off. Mm. Because that gives me hope that the mask will come off at the Ex- end of season Ex- Oh, one, yeah. yeah. And then we will just get Pedro Pascal in season two. So I'd be so psyched for that. So I do think the mask is working really well. But I'm not sure I'd want to see like four seasons of this show where he's always wearing the mask, you know? Yeah, I feel like overall this story, you know, is simple. 
I feel like what it's gearing us up towards is not just kind of the reintegration of the Mandalorian as a character into society and connecting with people that way, as was teased here, but like the Mandalorian as a people. Mm-hmm. Um, because they have to be, right? Because we've seen what they can be before, what they were, and now this is such a fall. And it's not their fault. This was done to them. It's horrible. Mm. Um, and just that heavy-handed, this is the way. It's like, it, I don't think it's going to be that way forever. And I feel like it is going to be the rehabilitation of them as a society too. Yeah, definitely. So I felt like when he said, this is the way with Amira, it it's just sad. felt sad. It is sad. Yeah. And yeah. hollow and meaningless. And it's like, well, why is it the way? It feels a bit stupid to me. Yeah. It's in the way of you connecting with this woman and you clearly care about each other. Like, yeah. I, I was really impressed, again, with the way that they can show this connectedness between the characters while he's masked that way just um <laughs> sounds silly but like the eye contact the lingering uh that use of body language between them the framing of the the shots that Bryce Dallas Howard decided to do um yeah. the idea of her going to unmask him and him cl- enclosing her wrists with his hands like there's this real tragedy to it yeah it's really beautiful and I think Julia Jones also did a great job of selling that. Oh, yeah, she was great. She was easily the best performance in this, apart from like Pedro Pascal as the Mandalorian, because he always impresses me, like how much he conveys of so little. Yeah, I thought so. So that was really good stuff. Although I did find it funny in that after the conversation they had about the mask not coming off, he took the mask off to eat the food. <laughs> and obviously the idea is that it's in private, so it's okay. But it's like, it's a great big window. If anyone looks if... up from where the children are playing, they will see his face. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so it's we find that a bit dumb. We just can't think about it too much. It's our fault. We're trying to tear it apart. <laughs> but like, yeah, he takes it off. And it's like, he's looking out at them. It's like, if you can see them, they can see you. <laughs> Unless you've got like blackout windows. <laughs> it's like, wow, these villages are surprisingly sophisticated. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's quite funny. Like, did all the scenes of Baby Yoda playing with the children, did that fall into the, you're kind of pushing it, guys? I mean, a little. Review? It was obviously very sweet. And I love seeing, I really love the scenes of kids playing together. And, you know, Yoda connecting with them too. Because I don't know if those kids had the force. That wasn't part of the story. But he was making connections and that's what mattered. And yeah. the, the adults looking on and saying he's clearly happy here. Obviously, they were teasing the notion of them staying there. You knew that they wouldn't be able to because we knew that the tracking fobs were still in process that that was still dangerous for them but yeah. they, were, they were setting it up so that when they'd have to leave again it was you know it was sad there was like this potential here for a life um to settle with safety and connection and it didn't work out for either of them yeah it doesn't mean no, it's it the end sad. of that yeah no definitely like seeing that like tease of like oh you we, you could stay here and like the implication being that we'd all become one big family it really did make me think of like Brady Bunch vibes. <laughs> you know, like blended family. Yeah. I would watch that sitcom, you know, just like regular family. <laughs> yeah, I still think there's a potential for that because obviously this, they're setting up this idea right from the beginning of found family with how the Mandalorian came to be a Mandalorian and the, you know, the foundlings of the future and um, here's in Cara Dune's quick connection and how I think that they'll still be allies in future episodes however they come together and again um i was really impressed with her character as well i mean she kicked ass right from the beginning and then she saved the day when baby yoda was in harm's way and 
I'm really intrigued by her backstory as a rebellion soldier who then became like disillusioned with the job once it transitioned into peacetime. Yeah, same. Like she's clearly someone who thrives on the like thrill of combat and almost needs that. And yeah, it's interesting. So it ties into a, a running theme that we're getting in this show so far, which is of lots of salt being directed at the New Republic. Yeah, and people being like, ah, uh, not for me. Definitely. Um. So I wanted to ask you about something. As we knew, more female characters were going to show up in later episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of had that theory, and we're far from the only ones, about it being like intentionally over-masculine <laughs> at the beginning of the show, and then that being challenged throughout as part of the story, right? Do you... Mm-hmm. And there was some backlash to that, because noticeably people were understandably watching the show and thinking, hey, uh, why are there no female characters? This kind of sucks. Yeah. Um, do you think there would have been that same kind of discourse if the show had been bingeable and that it would all have been put up in the same week and we could have watched the entire show by now? I I think that will depend on how the rest of the season plays out, to be honest. Mm. Which, sorry, I know that feels like a bit of a cop-out answer. But, for example, if this episode that we've just had, if after this episode, say, we don't see Kara again until like the last episode and she comes in the last minute. Mm. And besides that, there aren't really any other significant female characters. Well, we know we're getting Ming-Na Wen, right? Yeah, that's true. And we're getting um, Natalie Tina as a yeah. um, Twilight. So yeah. yeah, there clearly will be other female characters. But yeah, it just remains to be seen how significant they're going to be. So yeah, I think... If we take it for granted that there will be more and more significant female characters over the course of the rest of the season and they have significant interactions with the Mandalorian through which we see different aspects of him and different sides of his character, then yeah, I think if the show are bingeable and the show offers that sort of development, then yeah, I think it would be kind of like a rare criticism, to be honest, and it wouldn't seem particularly well-founded to me. Again, how people react to it as individuals, that's perfectly legitimate as individual responses, but I would see it as a clear point being made by the show. So I hope that makes sense. No, it does. I just think it's interesting in this day and age where you have all of these different streaming services and they all work in different ways. And Disney Plus has just launched with this as their main original show that was created for this platform. So mm-hmm. I wonder if when they were filming it, they knew the structure that it was going to be released week by week or they thought that it was going to be kind of one long thing and that people would just watch the whole thing in one sitting. And I do think that kind of impacts the way people uh, perceive stories because a lot of what we've been talking about with the sequel trilogy, I think the backlash of The Last Jedi has been kind of amplified by the fact that people had to wait two years in between. Oh, um, absolutely. And kind of stew over what they thought were the wrongs of the story when an to to me, they're twists that will be resolved in the third act, but um, yeah, I just I just find find that a really interesting uh, topic at the moment because I do think that changes the way people interpret stories, and Disney must have made that choice for some reason. Yeah, no, you're right. That is a really interesting area. Like I sometimes, because obviously I think about stories a lot. I sometimes think, how will the sequel trilogy be viewed in like 10, 15 years from now? Mm. Where there's going to be a whole generation growing up where they don't remember the individual movies coming out. Right. And they've always had that as a complete story. So I like to think it will be much more like accepted and taken for granted as, yes, this is the final three films of the Star Wars saga and they perfectly work as a complete story in their own right. And yeah, I'm very, very curious to follow that. Yeah. 
I don't know about you, but I'm really enjoying the kind of anticipation of the new Mandalorian episode every week. Mm, um, but yeah. I kind of want to talk to someone after it's over. Someone, I'll find someone who hasn't watched it yet. And then when they do watch the whole thing, I'll be like, how quickly did you watch it? What did you think? Like, did you kind of want a day or two between each episode to process it? Because I don't know how many people watch TV that that way these days out of choice. If it's all there, do you just watch multiple episodes? Especially when they're all like, 40 minutes or under like the show yeah it definitely feels more realistic to binge watch something like the mandalorian rather than game of thrones so if you do game of thrones it's like well yeah you could technically watch it all in a day but you're doing nothing else that whole day. <laughs> yeah so yeah it's interesting i feel like the mandalorian is the perfect format yeah because i'm enjoying i mean this episode episode four i've only managed to watch once but um in the previous weeks i've been able to watch the episode at least twice before we discuss it Mm -hmm. and uh, some of them I've watched like three times throughout the week because I feel like each time you watch it there's a different thing to take in because there are still Mm. lots of easter eggs like there was that um loft cat in the the restaurant that they went into oh yeah no I Um, liked that yeah it was really cool to see that in live action that's Um, the one person who doesn't stand baby Yoda the loft cat does not like (laughs) him yeah he wanted to be friends with him yeah. <laughs> didn't work out <laughs> yeah no it's a harsh life lesson but yeah no that was really interesting i felt it was quite well executed in live action uh-huh. so this is a crazy design for a cat but they <laughs> kind of made it work which is impressive yeah for sure so who's directing next week's episode that's a really good question let's find out i have a feeling it might be feloni again okay so i know he's doing two episodes um okay yep it's feloni Okay. And it looks like he also wrote this episode, which would oh, be interesting. Really? Yeah, because okay, all the cool. previous ones have been written by Favreau. Yeah. So, yeah. I expect it to be, like, super strong. Yeah, this is a live-action Clone Wars vibes in that case. <laughs> yeah. I would love to hear John Favreau talking about the romantic aspect of this this episode. Mm. Um, yeah, I just really enjoyed that with uh, Mandalorian and Amira. But I know people yeah. are shipping the Mandalorian and Kara too, so. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. I, I, I can totally buy it. You know, you can ship anyone and they're both really cool characters. I just, yeah, I didn't get that vibe between them, but more power to you. Yeah, I think it really depends on people's perspectives and, and what they're interested in in terms of the dynamics. Because uh, I did see someone, and I, I this did occur to me when I was watching it, but it's like you see it so often that it barely registers, unfortunately. You know the bit where that well she said like oh i i'm a good shot and she's the only one in the village who's like a good shot right and then (laughs) they're like training and then the mandalorian's looking at her like oh i'm so impressed that the lady can fight it's like how many times is star wars gonna pull that one yeah (laughs) such benevolent sexism yeah so what a a woman can be in combat (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Like, so I did appreciate that with Kara, it was just taken for granted. It's like, yeah, she's a woman and she's a badass fighter. What of it? <laughs> so, yeah, it just wasn't remarked upon at all, but it definitely was with Amira. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know if that's because of the way that they were presented as, as characters. Like, you know, Kara has a tattoo on her face. She's got the classic bi haircut. Um, Amira's like presented as more traditionally feminine, you know, in the home, bringing him food. Um. Yeah, I don't know. There's this. Uh, this show has some interesting gender commentary. Yeah. 
No, it is. I'm looking forward to episodes actually being written by women, to be honest. I think that will make a difference. I don't think any of the episodes this season are written by women. Yeah. And I think you can tell. Um, And obviously it's fantastic. They have female directors, so... Oh yeah, I think that's making a difference. But yeah, you can't underestimate the power of a female written story. Totally. Um, yeah, but with Amira and her shooting skills, I want to find out like her backstory. She yeah. clearly has like some like badass past and yeah, I'd love to know more. Yeah, I'd love a story about her and her life. Yeah, and she's a widow, like who is she married to? What happened there? Mm-hmm. So many questions. Okay, cool. Um yeah, are there any like final thoughts that you have about this episode, like to wrap up the discussion about it? Um, well, I have to watch it again, I've only seen it once. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I just liked it as kind of a turning point in the story. Because like you say, kind of chapter three was like a cap to that arc. Um, and now it's like, where where is this going now? Because um, mm-hmm. obviously the danger is catching up with them. Literally by the end of that episode, they need to flee again. So oh, what's going to be the point where the Mandalorian kind of turns around and fights for him rather than just running? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when do we find out more about what exactly they wanted with Baby Yoda? Yeah, exactly. On that note, I cannot wait for Werner Herzog to come back. Mm. I love him so much. And <laughs> yeah, like I wanted a shot of him in his PJs when the Mandalorian invades the base <laughs> to um, get the Baby Yoda, to be honest. Yeah. It's like, who are you? I could picture him in his PJs wearing one of those like old-timey like nightcap things. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Holding a candle. Who goes there? <laughs> yes. Give us the um Christmas Carol tape yeah. of um one Herzog. <laughs> it would pay so much money. Oh my god. Uh, oh, that's amazing. Um but yeah, it's a fun episode and I'm intrigued to see what's up next. This is interesting to me because um yeah, they don't do trailers, do they, for the Mandalorian? I just certainly don't recall seeing trailers for like coming up next on the Mandalorian, you know? Um I think there have been like TV spots, but they're just kind of showing clips from it. They're not, I don't know. I don't think there's like a heavy push for a certain narrative at this point. Yeah, no, it just makes sense. It's slightly frustrating when you're greedy like I am, but it's fine. We'll find out what the episode is in due course. It's not too long to wait. Yeah. <laughs> in the meantime, I'm going to be reading some fanfic. <laughs> oh, nice. Mandalorian Amira fanfic, by any chance? Uh, and Kara, I think. Because I'm, okay, I'm nice. really interested in their relationship. Not necessarily romantic. I just really liked all of these new relationships and where they're going to go. Yeah. Because no, I think even if we don't see Amira again, I think she's had a really profound impact on the Mandalorian in terms of what he's going to be thinking about for the what he wants out of his life. Because he's, he's saying, like, I can't settle down. That's not me. That's not my life. But on some level, you can tell he wants it to be. He's not yeah. happy in that mask. He's just kind of kind of wrestle with that for now it's very tortured yeah there's lots of angst going on underneath that (laughs) helmet (laughs) oh bless him okay cool so let's move on to the episode of star wars resistance which is rendezvous point and the plot of this one is the first order captures a resistance pilot with connection to captain dozer and torah and to just get out of the way like i did enjoy the episode the mandalorian but i thought this was better Okay. Uh, this was yeah. definitely my favourite episode of this season of Resistance. And maybe my favourite episode in general, I can't even remember. But yeah. uh, I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm so glad it came finally because 
the last few weeks we've been like, oh yeah, this episode was fine. Can't wait to see Tam again though. Please, can we yeah. see her? And we got to see her and it was great. So, Yeah, like... <laughs> Like, I still can't get over the episode where it was like Flix's homeworld, right? And, just that. and like, that is the definition of filler. But it's okay. okay because I can go back and enjoy that episode more now, knowing that the good stuff with Tam was coming. Yeah. And of course it was, but like, I hope no one blames us for being like, oh, I really want to get back to Tam. I, I care about that character. And they've obviously set up these really interesting things. And then they tease us with multiple episodes of just not mentioning her at all. Yeah. And this, but this episode was so worth the wait. Yeah, it was. Like, it was great time content. It was, and I'm so glad we got to meet Tora's mama too. We yeah. speculated when the whole thing happened last season with uh, Kaz finding the Imperial uniform in Captain Doze's closet. It was like, oh, he's an Imperial. It was like, what if the reason we haven't seen Tora's mum is because she was on the other side? Mm. Um, and I don't know if it's like other side in terms of that was when they got together, but clearly she's made a choice in her life that means she can't be with them. It's all yeah. very romantic. Yeah, no, it's exactly what I love about Star Wars, basically. And I really think that Vanessa is like my second favorite Resistance character after Tam now, because Tam is obviously the best character in Star Wars Resistance. But yeah, Vanessa is just that good. She's wonderful, I really and I, she makes me appreciate Tora more because you can see where she gets so much of her spirit. Um, yeah. Tora's obviously more of a minor character, so we don't see her as much. And she's younger, so she's still got that very much like youthful, optimistic bubbliness going on. And Tam, I get the sense that she's a bit older, um, yeah. and she's had a difficult, harder life, it seems like, for, from Tora. Although obviously this is information on Tora's backstory that lends an extra sadness to her, and you saw that come out more in this episode that she was like sad that she'd missed her mum and it was her birthday and she didn't want to tell people she didn't want to bother them she didn't think they'd care mm. um i felt like it added layers to her as well yeah seeing this episode it reminded me of exactly how young tora is yeah because yeah she is still basically just a kid who misses her mum and like wants to do her mum proud and yeah there's something beautiful about that and um yeah, like I also appreciated the relatively subdued Kaz content this time around, and he put himself to good use by just using his skills to plan a party, which was very good. <laughs> he could do that. He did that really well. And again, I'm being mean. No, but like Kaz job, really Kaz. pissed me off in the last episode. So I was like, yeah, don't let him do anything responsible. Just like put him on ice. Yeah, I'm good with that. Yeah, I think sometimes in animation it kind of just gets that where they like need a character to be a certain way for an episode and then it's not really in keeping with how they've been the rest of the time or at least yeah. in recent episodes um but yeah he was he was fine here um yeah. and i just loved the way is it vanessa is that how you say her name uh, i yeah like i i wish i could summon up the memory of how it said but i think that's right so go for it mrs dozer um <laughs> Mrs. Dozer. <laughs> well, I, I really appreciated that, it, you know, she still had complete faith in Tam as a good person. She was obviously, mm. like, teasing her. She had this real sense of humour about her. She didn't take anything too seriously. But when it came down to it, she knew that Tam was still a good person. And she oh, was, yeah. like, imploring her to leave. And, like, really think about what it is you want out of life. Because this isn't it. This isn't what you think it is. Yeah. 
And while while I was watching that scene where she's talking to Tam and trying to get her to rethink things, I was thinking that I bet there was some point where she had very similar conversations with Emmanuel Doza, mm. you know, because there's the idea that she got him to defect and that was the origin of their romance, essentially. And yeah, like she's clearly a person who's very talented at looking into into someone and knowing like what to say to them to really get them to look deep into themselves and examine their reasons for doing what they're doing and yeah then she also has faith in that person to ultimately make the right choice when they're challenged like that and I think at the end of the episode she realizes that Tam isn't ready to come back yet so that's why she doesn't actually try to bring her with her on the ship because she knows that Tam has further to go on that journey and she needs to do that for herself basically is that the vibe you got in terms of why she left her behind yeah, I think she's kind of kicked Tam's upcoming redemption arc into high gear, but ultimately that decision has to be Tam's. Um, because, of course, she could leave the First Order, but it doesn't mean she'd have to go back to Kaz and Yeager. Mm. Um, it's kind of this idea of she could do anything with her life, but um, also trying to make her understand that when you sign up for the First Order, they're not going to just let you go. Um, mm. You're You're kind of in this life now and you really have to make the conscious choice to leave otherwise that's just where you are now yeah um, it's kind of like getting Tam to face up to the severity of the choices that she's made which were totally understandable but she's like got in way over her head basically yeah exactly and you can tell at the end of the episode she realises she's in deep deep shit yeah. <laughs> essentially it's like oh no well, it's scary because Tierney's right there and then she has to go and offload this report of exactly what happened and of course she can't tell the whole truth because mm. she was having these conversations and not being entirely sure of where she belonged yeah and you can tell she's terrified like by the prospect of having to be cross-examined by this team and yeah it's yeah. just really scary for her yeah i just really appreciated the way that um like as a parent Tora's mum was kind of expressing that we all make mistakes like you know directly saying that Yiga cares about you like a daughter um mm. kind of getting that across for Tam because we know that he felt that way but I totally see from Tam's perspective that he lied to her and really broke her trust and yeah. that can take time to heal and I'm impressed by how they're really sticking to their guns with that sense of betrayal that Tam feels so I think it would have been really easy to present that in a way where it just makes Tam seem like stubborn or bullheaded, you know, and like, oh, come on, like, you know, they were well-intentioned, they were just wanted to protect you. But I think it's really well-written and performed. So, yeah, you do just feel it is this, like, actually really justifiable and understandable hurt that she carries inside her. And, yeah, there's not going to be a quick fix to it. There's no just like, come on, wake up, Tam. Exactly. It really respects her as a character because um, mm. it's not like you're solely well maybe some people are but like for Kaz and Yiga as well you understand from their perspective why they were hiding it from her they thought that it was kind of for her safety mm. um, of course all of that's sort of irrelevant at this point because it's clear that they are with the resistance <laughs> and the first <laughs> yeah. order against them but you know it's always going to be a moot point like that but yeah I have hope that they'll all kind of come back together by the end of this season yeah and I'll tell you what, like that scene where um, Venisa and Tam, they encounter Rucklin in the corridor mm. and Venisa like goes him to like 
be to say basically that well if you ha- need to shoot me then you have to shoot her first yeah and he can't bring himself to do it and it's like oh my god they're gonna do a redemption arc for Rucklin as well oh, i could yeah. not believe this it's like a total malfoy thing oh yeah but maybe even nicer than it yeah he's not like that's the thing like none of these characters are bad I think, you know, we're not going to get into the same level of depth for Rucklin, of course, but showing that, I was like, of course he's not going to shoot Tam. He cares about her. Might not want to admit it to himself, but... Yeah. And I'll tell you what, I thought that Rucklin and Tam, they have the best ship name ever, because it's Tamlin. (laughs) You see it, though. You see it. It's really good. It's a pretty great ship name. True. I don't have any resistance ships, unfortunately. I would like one, but... I don't like actively ship anything in resistance, but I can see seeds where I'm like, well, if they developed it in this way, then I could potentially ship it. And I doubt I'll ever be like reading resistance fan fiction, but in terms of there being a relationship on screen that I'm like actively rooting for, you know? Yeah. So. I think Kaz and Tam, they pretty early on were like, oh, they're like brother and sister. Yeah. It's like, okay. I don't feel romance there, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> They've done a pretty good job of squashing that. I do honestly think that romance between Tam and Rucklin is more likely. And I feel like (laughs) in season one, that would have seemed completely impossible. So there's already been a lot of growth in these characters, guys. (laughs) We'll see where it goes. Yeah, you never know. I've probably like the one person on the planet who's like, yay, Tam Lynn. (laughs) (laughs) So, oh my God. You need to put it out there. You need to be the... (laughs) The soul person. Yeah, I have to start that hashtag. <laughs> People looking up stuff about the folktale Tamlin will get very confused very fast. <laughs> oh my god. But yeah, really fantastic episode. And also, like, before this episode, I don't know where I got it from, but I had the idea in my head that Tora's mum was dead. So I was so pleased when it just turned out well, she was absent. I don't blame you for thinking that about a mum in Star Wars. <laughs> Yeah, it's quite a natural assumption. Yeah, it's often the way. So that was refreshing. Yeah, no, so it was really nice. And I saw some people on Twitter say it was nice to see like a stay at home dad vibe. Yeah. um, While the mum's going out and doing the fighting. So yeah, it was an interesting subversion of expectations. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it was good. And to me, it also sold me more on like Doza being so like uber protective of Tor all the time. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, it really because... touched me when at the end of the episode when she walks in on him watching that hollow of them together. Yeah, the conversation was really well done and beautifully written, in my opinion. Like, I especially loved that they made a point of saying sometimes the galaxy needs her more than we do. Yeah. So I felt like that was a really like brave sentiment to go for, to be honest, because... Yeah, like there is this expectation that your ultimate number one priority should be your family. And yeah, like 99% of the time and in an ideal world, that should be true. But when like everything is at risk in terms of there being this galactic conflict, it probably is true that, yeah, she can do so much out there fighting for this cause that, yeah, she does need to be out there doing that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it was really nice to hear that from Tora as well after she'd been kind of hurt by the rest of the episode. Yeah, I felt really bad for them because I thought at the end they'd wing it so that they could still meet somehow, you know? So I felt sorry that, oh, it looks like they did miss the opportunity. Yeah. But hopefully later on, you never mm-hmm. know. <laughs> so, right, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Stars Nonsense on Tumblr. 
I'm Kirsty, and you can find me at Bastila Bay on Tumblr. And you can find us both on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye!